Uh, interesting story that came out, I believe it was last week, where um, a sentence for an Alberta woman was slashed in half. Her name is Helen Nasland, and she was convicted of killing her husband and sentenced to 18 years in prison. But the Court of Appeal um, decided to change that sentence and reduce it down to nine years um, because they decided to take into consideration um, the years she had spent in an abusive relationship with the man that ultimately she killed. Um, it's being called a landmark case. So joining us now to talk more about it, we have Jan Reimer, who is the executive director of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters, former mayor of Edmonton. Um, Jan, thanks for joining us. Nice to talk to you again. No, thanks for having me. Good morning. Yeah, this case, um, uh, it's being called a landmark decision and something that people have been, you know, uh, encouraging this kind of consideration for years and years. Just, just tell us how important you think it is that in this case, the legal system um, took into consideration the background of years spent in an abusive relationship. Yeah, I think it's a landmark for two reasons. One is, you know, considering that, um, you know, Helen Maslin was close to 30 years in a very, like an extremely violent uh, relationship um, and, you know, um, had very little recourse as a woman living in uh, rural Alberta. But also the Court of Appeal spoke to outdated thinking in the courts um, and how, um, you know, like the justice that made the original decision for the 18 years called it a cowardly act or something like that uh, on a vulnerable victim. This is a man who was in a drunken rage, was threatening to kill her, was throwing wrenches at her, um, was threatening her with a gun. Um, and, uh, you know, hard to, but not thinking about the vulnerabilities involved for her. Um, so I think from that perspective, too, it's really that, uh, a landmark that people, you know, judges need to consider the impact of abuse on relationships. I think um, the other really important thing to point out is that when you see, uh, you know, um, there's been lots of write-ups in terms of, you know, different studies on sentencing. Like if men kill their partner as part, you know, in, um, they usually get two years. Helen got 18. And we were hard-pressed when we went through uh, different uh, cases in Alberta to find anyone who had been sentenced for 18 years. The closest we could find was uh, Michael White at 17, where he, years where he, he actually, you know, killed his wife, um, and then hey, hang on a second. The hang, on, hang on, just one uh, second. But that there. was the only one. Hang on a second, there, Jen. Two years is is yes. is what men typically do when they murder their their partner. That's yes for manslaughter. It's often not even considered murder. It's considered manslaughter. Okay. And it's, uh, you know, it's two years. Um, you know, the outlier on the other end would be maybe eight or nine. So Helen's now serving the maximum sentence uh, that men would usually get if they kill their wife. Um, the other, going back to what the justice actually said, uh, you're right, uh, you know, and they called it archaic thinking. His quote was, you had options you, other than shooting him. You didn't have to shoot and kill him. Um, that kind of thinking, um, I, I can see a lot of people saying, well, she did have options. She did have choices. She didn't have to shoot and kill him. She could have left. And um, we still have that kind of thinking, Jan, where, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... to understand the both sides of this argument if you're in a legal position we're saying you know is this is this it's not green lighting it obviously but do you understand what i'm saying in terms of yeah uh, yep. where do you where does the justice want to come down in this area 
Yeah, well, it's a whole. I think it's the whole understanding how, yeah. how domestic violence plays out in an abusive relationship. It's about power and control, um, and in this case, very uh, you know coercive control um, that he used uh, against her for decades and against her children. Um, and you know, children are often used also as um, pawns in uh, you know some an abuser's uh, controlling tactics and. And we are seeing time and time again how courts don't take that into consideration either. Um, you know, he threatens to, if she leaves, he threatens to kill himself. He threatens to kill the children. He threatens to kill her. Um, and if she is successful in leaving, um, then he has access to the children and he continues to control her. So that's, you know, no matter where you live in the province, that's a reality many women with children face. Add to that that, um, in rural Alberta, where do you go? Um, yeah. There's no women's shelter in, um, you know, her community. Uh, the closest one would be Edmonton, and Edmonton shelters are often full. Camos would be perhaps another one. She expected to run through the fields um, to try to, to get out. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the uh, reporters who wrote extensively on the case last summer indicated that she had tried to leave once, but um, just found it impossible, probably because of his threats to kill her and the kids. Um, so there's so many different factors that play into it that often aren't even thought about. And we really do need courts to get beyond the outdated thinking and think about the rights of women uh, to have, and children, to have safe, secure environments, particularly in a home, which should be a loving place. And I know, Jan, another uh, topic of discussion around this whole situation is the fact that in some ways, there's really not a lot of room for justices to move, especially when it comes to sentencing. If someone's convicted of, you know, a certain crime, if, be it murder in this in this case, there's a mandatory minimum. I mean, there's yeah. there, there, it's sort of this has to happen, right? Does that need to be looked at as well? I, I think so, too. Like these mandatory minimum sentences often don't take into consideration some of the other options. Um particularly when it comes to murder. And, and I think it's also how, how um, generally, um, you know, charges are laid. Um, because if you're facing a murder sentence versus manslaughter, um, you know, what, what that works through and what that is is um, also a challenge. And I think in this case, you know, she was in a, a no-win situation and the, um, in terms of what was going to happen to her, if it, you know, as it went forward. Um, so... You know, if she had a mandatory life sentence, um, that, um, you know, is a real, you know, a challenge for her. So she was under extreme pressure to plead guilty to to manslaughter, um, even when they had a defense, uh, you know, of self-defense. So I think that, yeah, that's another thing that definitely has to be looked at. It needs to be looked at from that lens of women in abusive relationships, and often that's not one piece that's thought about in the design of any law. Um, the justice who, who made this decision or oversaw this change uh, last week, uh, Sheila Greco, said um, the original sentence was unduly harsh, and she su- suggested that in general terms, Alberta courts need to adjust their approach to cases similar to Naslin, saying it's beyond time for this court to explicitly recognize the cases of battered women killing abusive partners involve unique circumstances. How does that happen? Um, I imagine this case like this sets some precedent, but um, is there an overarching campaign? Is there something bigger that needs to happen to make this sort of oh, absolutely in? From, from our perspective? Because it's not only reflected in uh, you know criminal court um, and 
you know, it's assault charges, it's uh, murder convictions, it's family court, the lack of intersection between those two. We hear often how, you know, in one case, the perpetrator is up against criminal charges and then in family court, you know, best thing is for the child to have uh, visits with dad. Um, so they're really, there's really outdated thinking on multiple levels when it comes to uh, women um, in uh, violent situations. And I would go further to say it's not simply, um, you know, it's not only murder, it's across the spectrum. Um, and I think one of the ways to really address it uh, from, from my perspective would be uh, when, you know, there was um, hallmark decisions made to require um, uh, justices um, to have training on uh, sexual assault as a result of the, um, you know, Me Too movement. Um, but there also needs to be training on domestic violence. And I would take it one step further. I would say that when um, you know, governments are considering the appointment of judges and justices. They need to require that there be training on the dynamics of domestic violence. They need to require that there's training on, um, you know, um, you know, indigenous intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. um, before they even are considered to be appointed to the bench because the whole idea of judicial independence means it's really hard to move that forward after, but you could make it a requirement prior to appointment. Um, many just judges and justices don't have a background in family law. They don't have knowledge about domestic violence. They've dealt with real estate and corporate law. So you need a strong understanding of how domestic violence plays out in relationships and the harm it can do. I think um, it's one of the comments that always says that out for me, um, and it relates more to children, is um, from the Harvard Institute on the Well-Being of Children, is that judges hold, um, you know, a child, the development, the developing child's brain in their hands right. when it comes to dealing with uh, domestic violence and assault. So, you know, it's a really important uh, role that they can play, and then it needs to be thoroughly grounded in the evidence and the understanding of domestic violence. Um. Jan, uh, uh, I'm not going to, uh, this isn't a question that you haven't been asked before a million times, and I'm, I'm just wondering what your answer is, because you know what my text line is saying right now. Oh, so we're, 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 we're condoning murder now. Um, you know, if she had time to plan out a murder and then hide the body and keep it covered up for six years, she had more than enough time to leave. She had other options. Basically, this is going to open the door to all kinds of people saying, well, I was in an abusive relationship, and that's why I did what I did. What's your response? Well, if, if she didn't have those types of options, he, if she, you know, I think he would have killed her um, if she hadn't taken it with self-defense. Um, and people don't understand that, I think, in many cases, that, you know, op- he's a big man. She's very tiny. He's been throwing hammers at her all day. He's been threatening her with a gun. He's threatened to kill her. But he's her asleep, Jen. But he's children. asleep. Let me play devil's um, advocate. He's asleep do? when she shot him. Yes, he was, but um, he was also much bigger than her. He was um, chasing her, and there was no way she could have done anything other, you know, in terms of that. You know, obviously, you know, uh, and and taking the life of another human being isn't what you would ever want anybody to have to do. Um, But she had very few options, and I I would just point out um, to those people who are, you know, phoning in, or texting in that if the roles were reversed um, and he had killed her, he would not have gotten 18 years. 
Uh, Jen, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Jan Reimer, who is the Executive Director of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters and former Mayor of Edmonton.